listeners, and welcome to Infill, the EMB podcast. I'm Jane Natoli, EMB Action's San Francisco Organizing Director, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by Jane Green and Alex Goyette, leaders for our EMBs of Northern Virginia chapter. Welcome, y'all, and thanks for both being on the show today. Thanks, Jane. Glad to be here. I'm particularly excited about this one. I was born and raised in Northern Virginia. My parents live in Arlington. I went to high school in Alexandria. I know these places, so it's kind of fascinating to see all of this unwind from afar, all these things that I was like, this, this will never change. So I'm excited to hear from you, Jane, about what's going on in your work in Arlington and what helped you get to the finish line. And Alex, I'm excited to talk with you about what's coming up in Alexandria and what strategies you're hoping to replicate from the winds in Arlington. I'd like to give you each a little bit of time to briefly introduce yourself and talk about your work. We'll start with you, Jane. Yeah, hi. I have lived in Arlington since 2015 and have been involved in housing advocacy since 2017, before we had a EMB chapter. And I just really want more places to live. I like renting a lot, so I'm always looking for what that next new building is going to be. And I am an extrovert, so I like to speak at public meetings. Fun. They're a good place to do that. How about you, Alex? Yeah, so I actually grew up over on the other side of the Potomac in Maryland and moved to Northern Virginia in 2017 because I got a job over here. I actually lived in Arlington for several years in a high-rise apartment, and then the rising rents and inability to buy anything for a growing family meant I moved to Alexandria, which is a little bit cheaper, although we also have our own affordability issues here. So I've been in Alexandria since 2020. My family and I live in half of a duplex here. I am not extroverted. So, you know, speaking at public hearings is not my bread and butter, but I do it because it's important. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways we can all help the movement. Not everyone has to be excited by going to public meetings and speaking. So, Jane, I'm going to start with you, and we'll start talking about some of what's happened in Arlington recently. Arlington, Virginia, recently passed missing middle housing last year, thanks to advocacy and coalition building that y'all did. And this year, there's an opportunity to rezone in Alexandria. So right, exciting things going on there. Jane, can you tell us more about the missing middle proposal that was passed? What did it include? Yes. So to clarify, it was passed in March of this year. And what it did was it changed the zoning on lots that were zoned until then for only single unit homes, which is about 70% of land here in Arlington. So starting July 1, those lots will be permitted to have up to six units, nearly all of those lots. There'll be a small portion that will only allow up to four units. So that's a big change. It's kind of beyond what we've seen in a lot of other missing middle reforms to have that option to go up to six units. There's still a lot of restrictions. There's still parking minimums. There are a lot of design requirements to match that sort of single family home aesthetic. There are height and setbacks and lot coverage requirements, but Arlington already permits pretty large homes. So I don't think that will be a huge restriction, but there is a maximum on the unit size. So you can't have really large duplexes. You'd have to you know, get smaller unit sizes. And then there's going to be a cap on the number of permits that the county will issue for this missing middle type housing for the first five years. So overall, it wasn't everything we wanted as EMBs, but it was definitively an end to exclusionary zoning. And it does have the real prospect of having more housing supply and just different types of homes to match different households needs. No, that sounds great. And certainly 
it's a step forward. My parents live in a single family home in a single family home only portion of Arlington. And so certainly, you know, that's an area that I'm sure more people would love the opportunity to live. And this kind of legislation will give that to them. When did you start work to support this proposal? So Arlington has a really strong history of transit-oriented development, but it was developed under this sort of great compromise that all the new housing would remain confined to these corridors, mostly where there's a subway line, and that the single-family neighborhoods would remain preserved and untouched. And that's been going on for about 60 years. But the missing middle housing study formally began in 2020, And during the first phase, I was pretty pessimistic about the amount of change that the county staff would actually recommend. And it wasn't until the actual draft framework came out a little over a year ago in April of 2022, where we saw that we could have up to eight plexes. And that's when I got really excited and wanted to really commit myself to pushing this through. That makes sense. What is the housing landscape like in Arlington for folks who might not be familiar with it? How did this policy debate, you know, you touched on this, you know, how did it go? How how did you think it go? It sounds like initially you had some concerns that you weren't going to see a lot of change and that shifted over time. Yeah, so it's important to, a lot of things are important to understand Arlington's um, politics. We're under a county manager system. We have a county board. They're elected generally one at a time. They aren't, they don't represent specific wards or districts. They're all at large. So there's a lot of factors at play that really push the county board to have a strong sense of, they want to have consensus as much as possible. They want to kind of preserve the peace. They want to have this sense of the Arlington way that everyone got to come together and be heard. And we all, you know, are happy with the outcome. And as more and more renters and younger people and newcomers get involved in Arlington politics, it's just less and less of a viable outcome that we're not going to have that kind of consensus. So the policy debates are getting more contentious because more people are involved that have different opinions and don't want to just defer to what you know, more established single family homeowners want to see. And the other thing is that the, the county board members or elected leaders don't have as much ability to independently direct legislation. They can direct the county manager who directs the staff and the staff comes up with a proposal and then the county board can sort of, you know, make suggestions about the proposal, but they ultimately can only vote on the proposal that's brought to them. So having the staff come forward with something of up to eight plexes at the beginning was a game changer that we knew that that was Yes, that was our ceiling, but we had much more to work with than if the staff would have recommended, say, only duplexes instead. Makes sense. You don't get what you don't ask for, and therefore pushing that boundary to the higher end, because inevitably legislation always seems to get whittled down a little in its process, means that you're going to have a a better outcome with that. So you also mentioned something about the Arlington way. Certainly I've lived enough places that have similar concepts of the way things are. And that was kind of a consensus idea that was never really consensus. It was just a former group that had power and these former groups are in opposition. So what role did the opposition groups play in terms of your organizing, in terms of what happened with the legislation, all of that? Yeah, there were two real types of opponents in this process. There was the visible type, 
who we're all well familiar with, the vocal NIMBYs who are organized and who show up. And in this case, they have sort of unfortunately acronymed names like Arlingtonians for Upzoning Transparency and Arlingtonians for Our Sustainable Future. And they were very vocal and omnipresent at community meetings. They were also rude. Uh, they spread misinformation. They insulted the staff and the county board members. They were just hyperbolic about everything. It was like the sky is falling constantly. And they were organized, but they weren't, I would say, they weren't persuasive and they didn't really broaden their tents throughout the process. They just got more people sort of dug in. And so the county board definitely saw them and, and was concerned about them. But I think it was this another type of opponent that was actually more dangerous. The other was the opponents who worked behind the scenes. These are like the former elected officials and the sort of elder statesmen and elder stateswomen in Arlington, particularly former leaders and or you know current leaders in the Democratic Party establishment. Arlington is you know heavily Democratic county. And these are folks that had supported Arlington's sort of smart growth policies and our transit-oriented development and sort of forged that great compromise and preserved it, the one that I talked about earlier. But they were against missing middle, whether it felt like it was putting apartment buildings where there wasn't transit infrastructure or kind of just putting too much density where it didn't belong. The challenge was that they never spoke at public meetings. You couldn't point to who they were exactly. You know, people didn't really name them. And so we as, you know, Yimbies couldn't address them directly. And I ultimately think, but they, you know, they had the ear of the elected officials. And so I think they were ultimately played a larger role in, in how this policy got reduced because they, they had an effective way to speak to the elected officials and kind of make them concerned about both the policy as well as the political implications. So I think we got less than we wanted because of that influence, although we were still, you know, fairly successful overall. That makes sense. Certainly there are people who know how to work the system and understand that the best time to do that is not at a public meeting, but before it ever gets to a public meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, I also love hearing the Orwellian names of various NIMBY groups all across the country, whenever I meet more people. It's, it's so fantastic. So given all that, what strategies do you think were most impactful in, in getting this across the finish line? Well, despite what you said about public meetings, I do think the turnout at public meetings was the most important thing we did. You know, we all know that overall pro-housing voices are in the minority kind of is a general rule in these types of settings. And we got to the point at key public meetings where we were in the majority of public speakers. And I think having the county board members and, and commission members, you know, depending on the meeting, see that was really important and really helped sway some votes where it mattered. That makes sense. Certainly it is an important component of the work that we all do, getting people out there. Were there any strategies that didn't make as much of an impact? And then how did you pivot if you saw things that weren't working that you were attempting? You know, yard signs and, and signs and medians became a very contentious issue. The opposition spent a lot of money on their signs. I heard that one person personally wrote a check for $10,000 to fund anti-missing middle yard signs. We just don't have that kind of money shockingly enough, and didn't have the infrastructure to just put yard signs throughout the county. But I got constant 
requests and from people kind of in our networks of like, why don't we have signs? I need a sign. We're going to lose because we don't have enough signs. And I just was sick of hearing it. So I never, we never fully, but we did some signs. They're very pretty. And we brought them to meetings and stuff and people put them out, but we never won the sign game. We were never going to win the sign game. And so I'm glad we did not spend a lot of effort to, to try to do that. As they say in politics, signs don't vote. So mm -hmm. I, you're preaching to the choir on this one, but I get Excellent. it. A lot of people see them and and love them. So let's pivot a little bit here. I know you did a lot of great work in terms of coalition relationships that you built with this across Arlington. Can you tell me about some of those coalition relationships that you built? Yeah, the coalition groups were key to all of this. You know, being out front as Yimbies alone would not have gotten us the kind of support that we needed to get this passed. We needed to have this be more than just a housing supply issue. This needed to be a moral issue, a racial justice issue. And so having support from more respected, longstanding progressive groups was really critical. So that included the NAACP Arlington branch, an interfaith group called Voice, as well as the Sierra Club, the League of Women Voters, the Habitat for Humanity, the Arlington Young Dems got involved. So we really were able to, to bring a lot of people in. And from the and I wasn't sure that that was going to happen from the beginning. I knew these were groups that would, wouldn't be opposed, but I wasn't sure that they felt that missing middle housing because it isn't income restricted, because it's not designated for low income folks. I wasn't sure it was going to be seen that, that those groups would see it as worth their time to invest, to push this forward. But, you know, after, you know, work that they did on their own and then, you know, conversations that we had with them together, it was, I think more people recognize that that housing abundance is the foundation of housing issues overall. And we can't sort of separate the needs of low-income households from the overall needs of the housing supply. And so I think it was very helpful to have, it was essential to have these groups involved and, and really see this as one big housing supply issue. And, and they got fully, fully behind it. That's great. I, you know, that's certainly housing affects everybody in a lot of ways. So it's great to see that you built this broad coalition and brought that into this into this legislation and, and showed people how much impact even this missing middle would have across all of Arlington. What do you think were the biggest factors that led to the win? There were first some pretty pre-existing structural factors. One is we had county board members who were very motivated to get this passed. We couldn't have done it without their desire to make it happen. And second, Arlington most uh, all proposals sort of run through a commission structure of volunteers, volunteer citizens. Our commissioners are built, our commissions are filled with very forward looking, urbanist minded people. If we didn't have that strong endorsement throughout the process, we wouldn't have gotten this far. And those things were already in place. So, what we specifically added was the broad coalition of respected progressive groups, groups that had supported our elected officials, had been in all these other fights, and had been on the side of progressive reforms. So, that was really helpful. And then, as I said earlier, I think turnout made a big difference. We had some key meetings, and we started with only 25% pro housing voices. 
And then at the first big county board meeting, we had just over half. And the next planning commission meeting, we had about 60 to 70 percent of the people spoke were in favor of the proposal. And I heard that that changed a commissioner's mind that she was going to vote against and she decided to vote for not just the number of comments, but also the eloquence, the diversity of perspective, the real moral clarity that people brought, the way that we were, you know, supportive and positive really made a difference, you know, kind of contrast with the opposition. And and then the final, the final hearing, we again had just over half speakers in, in favor, which is in the realm of housing public hearings, I think really, I don't know, quite unprecedented, but pretty a pretty big shift to see that much support. And I think that that made a big difference. That definitely is the case. It's great to hear people showing up and passionately telling their housing stories and how they're impacted by the housing crisis. It, in a different capacity, I am a commissioner. It, it still is always fascinating, the power of public comment. There's something yes. about the human appeal. Yes. And I, I get what you're saying about the power to be able to tell that story well and and show that. So that's great to hear. Shifting gears, let's let's move over to Alexandria, Alex. So what's going on in Alexandria this year? What's happening? Yeah, where to start? There's a lot happening. So the city has embarked on a process that they're calling Zoning for Housing and Housing for All. It's sort of two paired initiatives. The Housing for All component focuses on looking back at the history of housing in Alexandria. So for those who, who aren't familiar with the city, Alexandria pre-exists D.C. Or, you know, Washington, D.C. was founded around two pre-existing towns, Georgetown, Maryland, and Alexandria, Virginia. And so we have a long housing history here, and primarily one that, that started as what we think of now as traditional urbanism. You know, Old Town Alexandria is a lovely place with townhomes and apartment buildings and businesses mixed in with residential. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. There's also a dark side to our housing history. We are, you know, here in Virginia, the core of a lot of parts of American history that most of us aren't too proud of today. And that seeps into housing politics. You know, the, we were really a core of, of pioneering residential segregation in the United States. And so there's an active effort by the city to look back on how that's impacting housing today and to address that fact. So the second aspect and the more forward-looking one is zoning for housing. So a recognition that this history of racial exclusion is built into our zoning code and that needs to be corrected. And there's a lot going on within that zoning for housing project. It's really an all of the above approach, which is fantastic. So one of the things that council will be looking at is expanding housing opportunities in single family zones. So we're hopeful that that'll look something along the lines of what Arlington did with missing middle housing. But we're going beyond that as well. They're looking at how to improve our ability to convert office buildings to residential use. They're looking at how can we specifically incentivize developers for building affordable units, designated affordable units through things like bonus density and bonus height, expanding transit-oriented development, looking at whether it's appropriate to put more housing in the city's current industrial zones, which are really light industrial. It's mostly warehouses and things like that right now. So really looking at a lot of different ways that we can stimulate supply of housing overall and specifically of dedicated affordable units as well. That really does sound like an all of the above approach. And it's it's nice to hear a city, you know, considering all of that and, and really putting it all on the table. Do you have a sense of the potential impact of the rezoning if it's successful? 
Yeah, I think as with anything, the devil's going to be in the details. So the part of the process we're at now is sort of this laundry list of subject areas that will be examined. You know, as Jane mentioned with Missing Middle going into it, they weren't sure if that was going to look like duplexes or eight plexes or something in between. We're in a similar spot right now. And so, of course, we're doing the best we can to make sure it's as expansive and inclusive and impactful as possible. What's the timeline of the votes? So when could something like this pass? Yeah, so we just wrapped up the initial sort of public input period. And now the city is sort of taking everything back, thinking through all of the input they got and writing the actual proposal. So we should be able to see proposed text at the end of the summer, sometime around September. There will be another period of public input. And then we'll go to commissions and to city council for hearings and votes should be in November of this year. So by the holidays, we should know what happened. All right. I'm holding you to that when I'm back for the holidays. I'll, I'll hope to find out. What has your advocacy looked like at this point and what have you been involved with so far? Yeah. So I think the most important thing that we've been doing is really starting to build out the coalition. And we've been very lucky to be able to kind of see a campaign play out just to the north of us in Arlington. We saw how our friends in Arlington built coalitions and how important that was. And we're really uh, trying to take advantage and, and preemptively build a coalition here as well. So that looks like a lot of things. We have a couple of great tenant organizing organizations in Alexandria. I've been talking with them. We have religious congregations who who are interested in the housing issue, so bringing them on board. And then your traditional sort of progressive or urbanist groups as well. So you already touched on this a bit about what you've learned from your fellow Yimbis in Arlington around this. Are, are there any other lessons beyond the coalition building in terms of organizing for housing at this scale or legislation of this impact? I think one thing that I, I think is more important than it might appear is to make it fun. And I really admired how the folks in Arlington did that. For example, I remember watching as Jane organized for hearings and Arlington's government building is like right in the, the center of a lot of development in Arlington. So there's like bars and restaurants nearby and coffee shops. And so they would get together at one of those fun community spots and like hang out beforehand and then go say their piece and then meet up again afterwards and chat. Um, so I think that's something that I'm really hoping to emulate in Alexandria and to make this not only it's important and impactful, but it should be fun too. It is important to have a social component. I can't say multi-hour city meetings are always the most exciting thing. So it's nice to have someone to turn to, to be like, did you hear that? Or <laughs> someone to commiserate with afterwards or congratulate for their great comment or any of that stuff. So that makes sense. How do you see your work shifting as we get closer to the vote? Yeah, as we get closer to the vote, I think it's going to shift a lot. From We're doing sort of like ground laying work now, talking to people about what this could look like. As the votes approach, that's obviously going to shift to more direct, like action taking. We need people to write letters. We need people to meet with council. We need people to show up at public hearings. So it's going to be a, a lot more direct and action oriented. I'd say. I hear you there. It's, it's quiet, 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 and then everything all at once. Yeah. Thank you for that. Now I want to I want to open it up to both of you and ask some more general questions about your work overall as EMBs of Nova not necessarily with specific cities and counties. What wisdom do you have to share for your fellow leaders as you continue this advocacy work? I think one thing is to try to make things as easy as possible for people in your network for whom this isn't 
their driving passion, but who would be willing to do something to make a difference. So that's kind of breaking down a survey and telling people like, here's what you should answer. When we had really long public hearings, I would get everybody's email and phone number and I would like tell them in advance, you know, half an hour before your slot is coming up. So people didn't have to sit around all day. The more you can make things easier, the better it is for people who aren't willing to devote hours and hours of their lives, but can, we need, we need all hands on deck at some moments. Yeah. And I think for me, one thing that I've learned from Arlington and and I'm learning now is that there's no such thing as perfection, especially when it comes to coalition partners. And even within your own YIMBY organization, people aren't going to agree 100% of time on 100% of things. And that's okay. The goal should be to find your areas of agreement where you can make progress on an issue and work together towards that, that shared goal. And so, especially in Alexandria, where we're really taking an all of the above approach, there are going to be some organizations that are super excited about a small subset of that. And we want to work with them on that small subset. Makes sense. What strategies have you used to scale your organizing efforts across your chapter? You you have, at least I'm used to San Francisco, which is one city and county, and I'm organizing people in a small space, but you're covering multiple cities, multiple counties. You have a, a pretty great structure of people covering different areas. You know, what does that look like and how do you, what efficiencies do you gain if Arlington does something good, Jane, are you sending that to Alex and like, take a look, right? And vice versa. I think at a kind of a high level, we operate in one universe. We have a group of leads. We have overall number of leads. And then we have sort of super leads who are coordinating kind of overall and then kind of leading and sharing a lot of information. We try to centralize some aspects like event planning. If it's more of a social event, we can have one person who can do that. Things like graphic design, try to have like one person who can handle that. We do one newsletter while different jurisdictions will send emails separately to their sublists. We try to have like one newsletter that goes out a month and that's sort of centrally planned. So those are the kind of ways that we we work together and yeah, use try not to duplicate efforts where we don't need to. Yeah. And I think the flip side of that is trusting and empowering local expertise. So I live in Alexandria. And so my focus is in Alexandria when it comes down to the nitty gritty policy stuff and turnout stuff. Similarly, Jane is in Arlington. She's focused in Arlington. We obviously support each other where we can. And we similarly have leads in Fairfax County and in Falls Church City, which are some other nearby jurisdictions. So I think it's, yeah, it's sort of a two-way street, if that makes sense, where we're supporting each other where we can, but really the leads in a jurisdiction are the one leading in that jurisdiction. How do you collaborate with your coalition partners in these campaigns and how do you maximize the impact of your work together? I found that in the coalition spaces, a lot of us actually end up overlapping. So in addition to being on EMBs, I'm also on the Alliance for Housing Solutions, which is a local nonprofit that focuses more specifically on affordable housing. A lot of my colleagues in that or in you know, their YIMBYs are also on the NAACP's housing committee. And then a lot of people are involved in churches that are part of the interfaith group. So there's actually a, like, if we could figure something out, we're kind of actually just one big group and people kind of sit in multiple chairs. And we just had a big meeting where you're supposed to sit with your group 
but everyone was in multiple groups. So it was just kind of hard, but that, that is what also makes it beneficial is that I can also tap into the list of the Alliance for Housing Solutions, as long as it's not like endorsement related, because it's a C3, you know, and then like we can piggyback over here and we can like share information because we're kind of all operating in more than one, with more than one hat on at different times. Yeah, and in Alexandria, I think what we've found is that different sort of groups and organizations obviously have a different focus, but they can also have a different strengths that often complement each other. So for example, there are some groups that we know are really good at turning folks out to public hearings. So obviously that's really important. There are other groups that have a huge email list. It can really push out information and share that informational and educational component. So that's another important aspect. Some groups have close connections with a commissioner or particular members of council. And so leveraging those connections is also important. And so really playing to each other's strengths and areas of focus and sort of sharing around the workload is really important. Yeah. One of the things I was most excited by is when the NAACP Arlington branch sent out talking points for the missing middle, and it was the talking points that I had written. It's like, okay, great. We're we're getting buy-in. We're part of this. I think that we can, you know, sometimes what makes it hard is that then if you're in multiple groups, then you kind of have to discuss this multiple times. And then sometimes you have other times where you're having your kind of everybody who's working on missing middle comes together. And so it can be... I mean, it's overall, it's a lot of work no matter how much you slice it to make this happen, but it's fun. And as you said, you know, making it fun too is, is an important part of this. We've met so many great people. People who like more people are just more fun people to be around. So I think it's just good to hang out with people who like people and want more people. It is good to find coalition partners that are fun to do the work with. It always makes it a little nicer. Your point about being in lots of different organizations, I, I jokingly call myself a human hat rack. I, I wear a lot of different hats. So there I certainly go. get that. We have the chance to show up as YIMBYs, not just within our local YIMBY groups, but in other spaces. And the same way we show up as advocates for LGBTQ plus rights or whatever other organizations we're also a part of care about in our other spaces, right? So that it's it's good to think about that and amplify that within the spaces we're in. Speaking of amplifying, how do you amplify others with different experiences and perspectives throughout a campaign like this? I think it's really important to help give people the foundation knowledge about the policy and what's on the table and then let them bring their own story. We had over a hundred public speakers who supported missing middle housing during this process. And we didn't write anybody's comments for them. We just gave them the basic information. So they felt comfortable knowing what they were advocating for. And then they brought their own experience to public comment. And the range of those comments really was helpful. I think the broad coalition is what made our public commenters more diverse more representative and reflective of our community than the opponents. I think our YIMBY group itself has work to do to be at that reflective, but as part of the coalition, we helped make that happen. Yeah, and I think for us in Alexandria, it's been really important to seek out those perspectives and try to get them in on the ground floor. We're still very early on in this campaign, and so there's a lot of room for molding what these proposals are going to look like. 
And so one thing I've been doing is actively reaching out to other groups and say like, hey, this is very early stages. Let's let's bring you in now. Let's have this conversation and talk about like, what would you want to see in this? And how can we uplift that advocacy ask in, in our own materials? I just had a meeting last week with a group of tenant organizers and we talked through like, okay, what is the city looking at here and what is missing? What is not on this list that you really would like to see? And how can we as EMBs amplify that ask in our own materials? And I'm really impressed with that. We were not able to build a coalition with tenant organizing groups. I'm still hopeful that we can build those bridges for other issues that come up. So I'm looking forward to learning from Alexandria in that aspect and how can we either take the conversation, like the approaches that you've had and find tenant organizers and other folks in similar positions here in Arlington to help do that same thing. To me, the distillation of hearing both of you talk about this is, is the trust to let people tell their story and the humility to ask others what the impacts are to them and what might not be there that you might not be seeing from your perspective, both great things to keep in mind as an organizer and when you're trying to do this work. Looking further ahead, what do you hope to see for housing in Northern Virginia in the next five years? I think the next big phase, I don't know if it's going to be five years, maybe more like eight, will probably be a state level advocacy and can we make state level change? There have been a few attempts to introduce like a statewide missing middle style or ADU and it hasn't gone anywhere. We have the kind of perennial problem of pro-housing crosses political lines, but so does anti-housing. There are Democrats who are very, very resistant, who will never give up local control or never have the legislature take away local control around zoning. So I think that will be a big question of can we build the right kind of coalition at the state level, but that's, that's I don't know, maybe more eight years. I think in, in five years, I think we really need to address the, the transit housing relationship. I still think there's a lot of ways that people see more housing as more cars and will only allow more housing if you also make space for more cars, which we know is not a good outcome on sustainability, on urbanism, on livability. So we need to start separating that and really make sure our elected leaders and our planners recognize that we can have places for people and does not mean we need to make a lot of extra places for cars and we can have other transit options. I think kind of shifting that mindset will help really unlock the power of more density, because I do think that fundamentally the most prominent opposition to more housing is to more cars. It's not actually to more people. Yeah, and I think relatedly for me, I think part of what gets us to that place where eventually we're seeing statewide reforms is a growth in the pro-housing coalition in Virginia. And so Jane and I are, are here from Yimbies of Northern Virginia, but there are also Yimby action chapters elsewhere in Virginia that are pretty new. We were really excited to see a chapter start up in Richmond, and we actually had sort of statewide meet up with them. I think that was late last year. And so we all kind of met and mixed and mingled, and, and that was a lot of fun. And they've had a huge win in Richmond on, on I think they fully got rid of parking minimums. And so when you get wins like that in other places, 
local electeds learn from each other. They talk to each other, they see what other cities are doing. And it's one thing for me to point out places that have eliminated parking minimums in other states. But if I can point to Richmond and say, hey, Alexandria, Richmond already did this and it's working out great, that's going to be a lot more compelling. Um, and similarly, Arlington has done missing middle. I can point to that and say, Arlington's done missing middle. Let's move on that. And the folks in Richmond can do the same thing. And so as each sort of individual local chapter of pro-housing advocates builds power, we're all also building power together and spreading that out across the state. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I think the other thing for uh, changing the political landscape is changing the electorate, changing who's voting. Um, we just had our election, our Democratic primary election in Arlington, the turnout in dense parts of Arlington was really bad. It was like a third of the turnout in, in single family precincts. We need more renters and younger folks and people of color. We need more those folks to vote so that when we show up at a county board meeting, the elected officials looking at us from the diets can see a voter. Right now, they, you could have five NIMBYs show up and yell, but they look like a voter. And when a, the county board members just like see a whole voting block when they see one person, if I show up, it's just me. They don't see the crew of renters behind me. They just see me. And we need to bring more people to, to board meetings, but we also need to get more people voting so that the electorate is skewed more toward renters, people who like housing, and that will change. I think that really unlocks a lot of positive change because the county board members, at the end of the day, they're out missing middle. They never had an argument with the policy, really ever. The only thing they really cared about and were concerned about was the politics, the potential backlash of what would happen if they did this. It was the political consequences. They weren't really concerned about what would happen with the housing. So we need to change the political dynamic so they feel really comfortable and they know that they will actually be rewarded, but it's hard to get renters and newer residents to vote. And that's a longer project. So advice, advice, welcome listeners. That, that is a challenging project. And for those of you listening who might not be as familiar with the landscape of Virginia's election timing, uh, it's a lot of odd year stuff that is very difficult to get voters out to. Political science has backed this up over the years. So they're not voting for local elected office at the same time. They might be going to vote for president, a much more consequential election that has higher turnouts. And that's why you start to see these things. So well taken advice to get involved, voting every election you get a chance and trying to make that an easier and more inclusive process is another way that we continue to get better pro-housing voices into office. And then they can enact the changes because as Laura Foote loves to say, we're just, we're building a parade and politicians love a parade and they want to be at the front of it. So we just want to make that parade for them. Uh -huh. How can other folks in Virginia get involved and support your work? They should sign up as members. We have great organizing tools that happen when you're a EMB Action member and you get to help us make this happen. We have a number of specific fronts that we're advocating on. Obviously, you've heard what's happening in Alexandria and Arlington. We have a kind of incentive zoning plan for our northernmost corridor on Langston Boulevard. So if that rings any bells for you, definitely sign up. 
at yimbizipnova.org, and we will have lots of opportunity to have public comment while also having a lot of fun. And then, yeah, there's just, there's always developments. Look around your neighborhood and see where there's a vacant lot and see where there might be something new planned. And if you want to follow it and learn how to get involved, then we will be there to help you. Yeah. And I'll just make a pitch again for my fellow Yimbis across Virginia who might not be in the Northern Virginia area. There's a lot of groups doing great work, including Yimby Action Chapters in places like Richmond and Hampton Roads. And then there are also non-affiliated groups doing work in places like Charlottesville and, and Fredericksburg. And so if you don't know about a group near you, feel free to email us and like we might know them and we can connect you. And even if there isn't an organized group, A, I'd love for you to start one. But B, one thing that we hear in Alexandria time and time again from our our pro-housing elected officials is that even having one voice in a room at a public meeting to disrupt the idea that the consensus is against housing is really important. And so that's, you know, scary to do. But if there's no organization where you are, you can still make a huge difference by disrupting an anti-housing consensus. And, and that's that's sometimes how things start. It all starts with someone showing up. And maybe being a little annoyed about something they saw. Never a bad place to start. Well, I thank you, Jane Green. Thank you, Alex, for your time today. Really appreciate getting these insights. Like I said, I was born and raised in Northern Virginia, and my parents still live there, so I still follow it a little. And it's fascinating to see this development. I didn't get really involved in housing politics until I moved to San Francisco. So... I didn't know the landscape, and it's funny to see so many of the same echoes, but also some different things because Virginia is a different place. The Commonwealth has its own uniqueness compared to California, and it's great to hear that. Thank you to all the listeners out there for joining us. I appreciate you tuning into the episode. And as was mentioned, one of the easiest ways that you can get involved is to become a member. So if you're interested in becoming a member today, go to yimbyaction.org slash join and you can check out our membership options. We have space for both volunteer and paid members. Easy for you to get involved. It's as easy as emailing your local planning official or your local elected and telling them that you support more housing in your EMB. So go check that out. That's yimbyaction.org slash join. And one more time, thank you to our guests. Have a great day, everybody.